Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Christy Avila, founder of International Flat Day and current vice president of Not Putting on a Shirt, joined us on the podcast. She was diagnosed with stage 3C invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 38. Christy talked about her treatments, making the hard decision to not have a second child, reconstructive complications, deciding to explant, and how she is helping others through her own journey. Take a listen in as she shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Christy. She was diagnosed in August of 2013 at the age of 38 with stage 3C invasive ductal carcinoma. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you, Melissa. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about your story. So I'm kind of interested in hearing how this all happened for you. Um, if you were going for mammograms, if you were doing a self-exam, if you found a lump, uh, you know, what, what kind of happened for you? Well, it actually started when my husband and I were getting ready to try for our second child and my son was approaching three. He was a couple months from being three, turning three. And so I decided to go back to my midwife and just get checked out and make sure, you know, everything was good to get started on that. And she's the one that had first recommended a mammogram, but then at that appointment, she did feel a lump. And from there, you know, I went forward to get the mammogram. But the unusual thing was my husband had actually felt the lump like the year previously, like almost a full year previously. And I always just remember the look on his face, like when he felt something, I just remember like this look of terror in his eyes. And I was breastfeeding at the time and a really close friend of mine had had like a blocked milk duct 
and had something very similar. So since I was still breastfeeding, I just felt like, oh, it's just because I'm breastfeeding. It's what my friend Katie had. And, you know, that was that. So. Oh, wow. So you um, didn't call the doctor. You didn't tell the doctor. You really just, I mean, no, in your mind, at, you were. Not at that point. Okay. Um, I think I mentioned it to like a couple close friends and my sisters. And since I was breastfeeding and, you know, so many unusual things go on um, when you're breastfeeding that I just kind of connected it with um, that process okay. of still nursing. And then did you, like, did you feel anything growing? I mean, there was like in that, I mean, cause um, a year is a long time. No, no. Okay. Yeah. I mean, no, I think at the, in the beginning, I think when he first felt in the beginning, I think it was like, um, it didn't, it just felt like hard, you know, like when you're breastfeeding and your, your breasts get engorged, it didn't feel like a lump or anything like very distinct. So, um, I didn't notice anything progress over time or in that, in that sense. So, um, when I did get the mammogram, it went, you know, that day immediately from the mammogram to, okay, wait here, they want to do an ultrasound. And then they moved me onto the ultrasound and then it was, wait here, the doctor wants to come in and examine you. So it was just like unfolding very quickly. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, if, if, they were able to detect something, you know, that, you know, the size that would be required to be a stage three, I would imagine that they would probably move pretty quickly. So did they then also do like a biopsy the same day or did you have to go back to do that? Um, no. So that I believe was like another week or two before I went in the, of the day of the biopsies. And at that time they actually suspected the cancer to be on my right breast. So I had four biopsies on my right breast, which turned out not to have any cancer and two biopsies on my left breast, which is where the cancer actually was. So what were they looking at so on the right breast? That, I guess just anomalies, just strange okay. things that were going on. Um, as my oncologist said and non-oncologist speak, um, a lot of funky stuff. Okay. So that was, <laughs> that's Technical why terms. He, like, was, yeah, was very on board for the double mastectomy, which is what I knew I wanted at that time. Right. And he said, you know, I agree. There's just a lot of funky stuff going on over there. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just so, imagining, so the biopsy like is one of those, like it's a trigger for me. Like somebody mentions biopsy and my body just immediately goes mm -hmm. into like just <laughs> flight, like get me out of this space. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. So to have four of them on one right. side where the cancer wasn't even at would, I, I just, yeah, that's hard for me to process. Um, so, right. And it was all on this. I remember it all being on the same day and it was like a six hour process where I'm kind of like oh suspended, gosh. like up above. And it was like, I had to be there super early. And I think I got out of there by three o'clock. And it's amazing how much those things effective affect us. Like when you say biopsy, I remember the place where I went for that and across the street was this little, little Eric's deli where my cousin and I went afterward because she came with me and even just driving like through <laughs> that area, I get that feeling that you describe, like just suddenly I'll just be brought back to that. Yeah. Space, so. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can, I think remember. people discount that. Yes. The clothing I was wearing, the shoes I was wearing, like everything all 
can come back to me in that that mm-hmm. absolute moment. So, so, so you went in, you did the biopsy and then, um, how long was it until they actually formally gave you di- a diagnosis? But it, actually, let me ask you this real quick. Did they even indicate to you, like, we have concerns that this might be cancer? Did they share that with you at that point? Um, yes, I think so. Like the, when the doctor came in after they did the ultrasound and they said he wants to see you right now and he came in I remember him feeling under my armpit and it was another one of those like looks like my husband's look like I remember like when he felt something large in my armpit and and he said have you felt this or have you not felt this but you know and just like this look on his face and I was like oh shit yeah um and Oops, I said shit. <laughs> it's okay. We talked about that. <laughs> You're fine. Um, <laughs> but I just remember his look, and I just asked him, like, point blank, and I said, is it cancer? Or I said, do you think it's cancer? Um, and he just looked at me and said, well, we there's so many things that could mimic cancer, um, and especially breastfeeding. There's so many things that can mimic cancer that I can't say. Okay. So I just, and, and then from there it went on to that, that wonderful biopsy day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, so from then, you know, did they call you into the office and, and kind of give you that information and did the, when they did the biopsy, they were also testing for like the ERPR positive and the HER2. Did they do that at the same time? Yeah. Okay. So when, yes. when, but I think at that point we didn't, um, Sorry. At that point, I don't think we knew the details of the type of cancer, but okay. they called us in. It was one of those things where my husband and I went in person, and it was a younger a female doctor, and she said, yes, it is breast cancer, and that it was a very rare type that they didn't know what type. So oh. <laughs> that, of course, added like a complete layer of, or more you know, shock because, okay, that doesn't sound good. Right. Right. And so that they were going to send it to, um, UCSF to get further pathology because their pathologist couldn't identify it. So that was like very scary as well. Absolutely. And then, so what happened after that? I mean, did they come back and then they said, Um, yeah, so they, you know, and I remember too reading that letter from the, the UCSF, um, doctor saying oh thanks for sharing this very unusual case with me and I you know I'm not sure I agree that it's probably this but um so they just agreed with a Santa Cruz side um and classified it the same way which ended up being ERPR positive HER2 negative okay and but you know always of course I just remember wondering well what was so you know unusual that um (laughs) they wondered about. Absolutely. I mean, I would be kind of curious about that too, mm-hmm. in terms of, well, why did you have to send mm-hmm. it out? You know, if, if it came back that it was a consensus or an agreement, what, mm-hmm. what was going on there? So yeah, I would, I think well, that right, would be some and that, questions. That second, that, that second surgeon, um, you know, added back that it was unusual or thanks for sharing it. Yeah. Like yeah. Doesn't help me. Funky and unusual doesn't help. (laughs) And it's right. And it's one of those things that I think, like, as we look back on our stories, we realize how much we didn't 
pursue information, you know, like, well, well, yeah, why didn't I find out more about that? But you're just so overwhelmed as you go through it that a lot falls by the wayside. Absolutely. Um, Which for me, a lot of that, um, part of that, which hopefully we'll be able to get into, I feel like the time's going quickly, um, (laughs) was breast implants, which I eventually um, explanted my breast implants. But that was definitely another one of those um, parts of the journey, let's call it the breast cancer journey, that I definitely didn't know that felt like I know that knew the information about or had time to acquire the information I needed. And you're not alone in that. I mean, I hear so many people who, um, have had that same experience and I definitely want to talk about that. I do have one question that I am curious about before we actually Mm -hmm. dive into that, because you did, Mm -hmm. you shared that you went through the mastectomy. And so, um, you know, we can kind of bypass some of that stuff and and dive into the implant issues. Mm -hmm. Um, but did you, was there a family history at all in, um, you know, with breast cancer or any well, kind of cancer? Well, there's that- not, as far as, there's definitely a huge history, um, especially on my mom's side. So she was one of 11 children, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, she grew up in the Azores, which are a group of islands off of Portugal, okay. between Portugal and the United States. Um, so of her siblings, three of her four brothers were diagnosed with various cancers. Um, she and three other sisters were diagnosed with either breast cancer or um, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at 54. But oddly enough, no one that tested positive for any mm. of the genes that they currently have tests for. Yeah. But like my oncologist has said, well, you, you guys definitely have some type of gene. We just don't have a name for it yet, or we have, we don't know that gene yet. Um, because he just said it's, you know, statistically, it's just impossible that there would be that much cancer in one family. For sure. For sure. So, you know, I always feel like, um, you know, whether there's a genetic mutation or not, you know, the number of people that I talk to as well, that, you know, there's, their families are just riddled with, cancer diagnoses. Um, and yet there's nothing that pops up in terms of a genetic mutation. And I, I feel like they, you know, really do have many years to go in terms of continuing to find that information and locating those genetic mutations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, I feel like either way it's something has to be there, you know, and, and just kind of knowing your family history, whether there's a, a found genetic mutation or not, it's important so that it can you know, kind of help you and keep you on your toes in terms of, um, you know, being proactive with your health. So, right. And I think just knowing even like with, um, mammograms not normally being scheduled before 40, like, so in my mind, I didn't even know that because of that family history, I could be receiving those types of diagnostic tests sooner. Like I was like, Oh, well, I'm not 40 yet. I can't get that test. Right. Um, so yeah, be definitely being proactive and doing everything you can. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the other thing too, is, you know, getting away from the whole idea that, you know, 40 is that magic number <laughs> in terms of when people should get mm-hmm. mammograms because, you know, you were 38, I was 31. You know, there are people who are 20 something mm-hmm. that, you know, 
there is yeah. nothing that would say that they should be getting and a mammogram. More and more so. Yeah, exactly. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. So let's talk a little bit. So you did the you did the bilateral mastectomy. You did did you do immediate reconstruction or did you do delayed reconstruction or what was that process? For um, you? Immediate reconstruction okay. that started with expanders at the time of my. Um, double mastectomy and then from there I had those for a year before my second surgery which was several months following radiation. I think I finished radiation at the beginning of summer and then I had my second surgery in October which was a total hysterectomy and then the exchange to the permanent so-called implants which were the saline implants. So I'm going to ask a quick question here. I'm not a mom. Mm-hmm. Just going to say that. Okay. <laughs> and I, it's been a while since I've had anatomy classes. <laughs> but I, so you talked about, and, and certainly if this is not something that you're okay with talking about, you know, feel free to stop me. Um, but you had talked about before this diagnosis coming through that you and your husband were considering having a, another child. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then... But having a hysterectomy would remove that as an option? Prevent that. (laughs) Right, right. Of course. No, I'm fine to talk about it. So I think at the time when I was diagnosed 3C, and actually they thought I was 4, so one of my scans showed something in my liver that they actually told me was metastasis and that I was stage 4. So there was a period of time during my diagnosis um, that we thought I was. My mom had just passed of ovarian cancer, which she was diagnosed with at stage four in her early 50s. Um, And being that there's such a strong link between breast cancer and ovarian cancer, it was just like, okay. My husband was like, I don't want more kids. And I think, too, in my mind, like knowing that my cancer was estrogen positive, it didn't make a lot of sense to try to have a pregnancy, which meant I wouldn't be able to take tamoxifen or, or any other kind of drug. And I think that 3C and thinking for a while that it was for, like it just made us, and especially yeah. me, like my son was, you know, just turning three. So it was like, I just want to be here for him. Like if mm-hmm. I, if I can't have more kids, that's fine. And um, I think too, just not knowing if the treatment was going to be successful too. So there was that fear of like, okay, let's say, let's say I do get better. I try to have a baby. I have a recurrence and then I have, you know, two children and an infant and I'm back into treatment. Like all of it just didn't sound like a good idea. And of course there's times now that I'm on the other side of it that I do regret that. And I do wish that, you know, either I had saved eggs And if that meant I had a surrogate or, you know, somehow decided that I wanted to try or, you know, took some other treatment route. Right. But overall, (laughs) um, it just feels like life happens. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, I, first of all, thank you for being so open and, and sharing that. And, you know, for, for me, it was a hard question to ask. Um, and I'm probably going to get a little emotional here. <laughs> um, but I remember. Oh, I get emotional too. <laughs> yeah. Good. We'll cry together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, 
you know, one of the things for me, because I have the, I do have the BRCA mutation and I knew immediately that I did not, I didn't want to chance anything. Um, but it was still really hard to come up with that conclusion that I was never going to have kids. Um, and that taking all of that off the table was really a struggle. Um, you know, so, and I, and I think Mm -hmm. about exactly what you said was, you know, it, it didn't make sense. Right. And I went through all of those same things in my head. I went through every single scenario that was possible. You know, what if I did IVF? What if I did this? What if I did that? What if I did a surrogate? Mm. What if I, you know, it was all of these different options. Mm -hmm. And I just, at the end of the day came back to, you know, if I, if I do something where I'm pushing more estrogen into my body, am I going to be here when the time comes that that baby's born, you know, and that's, and it's really Mm -hmm. hard. I mean, it's a lot to process. So, um, you know, I, I really do thank you so much for sharing that because, um, it, the words that you were saying were words that came right out of my mouth. Um, you know, obviously in a Hmm. different, in a different kind of perspective, um, (laughs) as not having any kids, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that's a hard decision. And I think too, it's, it's, it's something I feel like reminded about a lot because my son not so much lately because he's nine now but (laughs) for a long time he would say why can't I have a brother I want a brother and so it was like this you know always this kind of reminder of like well I want a brother too (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) or like (laughs) having wanted that for him um just as a general like experience in his life I really did want him to have that sibling and of course like I could definitely have um adopt a child but just as a family that's not something my husband wants so it's just not only about what I want so yeah yeah and I always you know I I, it's definitely a viable option I always feel like it's a little bit different though you know like it's yeah that is a, a possibility but at the same time you know when that when something has been taken away from you as an option it's a mm-hmm. little bit harder to process. And then, you know, I always worried, you know, if even if I adopted a kid, would I, would, would there be any level of resentment that I ha- would have? And I would hope not, but I don't know. Um, you know, and it was not anything that, that we were interested in doing either. So I hear you. So, mm-hmm. so thank you again for sharing that. Um, so you did the, um, you had that surgery, you did the radiation, um, and then kind of what took uh-huh. place from there? So after my treatment, I kind of went through the dark days, I'll call them, which were, you know, a year of a prolonged depression that was, you know, attempted to be treated with different antidepressants. And that's, you know, a lot, another part of breast cancer that, I feel like people are talking about a little bit more, but I think it's a really common experience that for the most part, at least like in groups and support groups that I'm a part of, I don't feel like it's talked about enough for how common it is, um, that part of it. But so I went through that time and when I came out of that, I kind of keeping my anxiety in check was a fine balance and, I had to to distance myself from cancer and all things cancer. Otherwise, I found that I would easily kind of get sucked into that fear of, 
you know, every little pain and every little yeah. thing is, oh, I have cancer here. You know, like, like this is going to start again. Um, so as I, you know, got distance from that, I felt stronger and kind of let myself slowly kind of be reintroduced. And I had a close friend who was diagnosed and who added me to a support group. And I kind of just started being there slowly and letting myself re-enter. But I found that, again, it's just important to keep that balance, um, especially if you feel overwhelmed or if you're struggling with anxiety. And for me, sometimes, you know, as the years go by, I get better at that. But it is sometimes feels like a fine line that I still keep watch over. Sure. Yeah. And I hear a lot of people say that same thing, too. Um, you know, and I would agree that it's the emotional aspect of it is not talked about, nor do I feel like it's genuinely addressed. Mm -hmm. I think. Or understood. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. So, and, and part of that was the surgery, like the reconstruction and why I didn't get a revision. Well, I never knew there were revisions, but once I had established, okay, this needs to be fixed. Um, surgery, I think, brings up a lot of that PTSD. And in my mind, I just really wasn't that gung-ho about getting another surgery. Sure. So I had, I ended up having implants for five and a half years, well, with the expanders. And was, you know, in my mind, oh, eventually I'm going to do something about this. But when I had gone back to my plastic surgeon, he had proposed a solution, which was to make them bigger. Like oh. that was going to solve the problem. So and was there, I couldn't figure out how. Was there damage <laughs> from the radiation? Is that kind of what the problem was or? Well, so the problem was that on one side I developed capsular contracture. Mm-hmm. And that's when the scar tissue hardens around the implant. Right. So this, the scar cap capsule that your body creates around the implant um, tightens and hardens. And that's more likely to happen when you have radiation. So that's why being reconstructed with implants isn't recommended if you are going to be radi go through radiation. Right. Um, or if you have been through radiation. So that's, you know, part of that information that I never had. And, you know, finding it years later, you know, as I'm discovering and finding out, oh, well, this was already known that that wasn't a good idea. And I remember when I went back to the surgeon, because it developed like almost immediately, that capsular contractor within four months or so. So I went back and said, you know, when we were done, they looked good. But, you know, now this one's like really going high up and he said, well, we need to just take them both out and put in bigger ones. So I'm just envisioning like two bigger lopsided boobs <laughs> and <laughs> that didn't seem good. No. And I really didn't want bigger boobs. And then I spent a lot of time contemplating how big do I want my boobs <laughs> and just not deciding. So <laughs> that was part of like, just, I guess that stalling, not wanting surgery, um, not knowing how big my lopsided boobs needed to be. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and I, I think it, what doesn't make sense in my mind, because I, I also have had capsulary contractures, so I 
I get it. But the whole thing about radiation and the reason why we don't want to do surgery, like the skin on that side where it's been irradiated is compromised and tends to tighten. So to go bigger doesn't like it. It's illogical in my head, but of course I'm not a plastic surgeon. So, right. Right. It doesn't make sense. And that was part of it. She was discovering that like the first consult I went to, to a very well-respected surgeon in San Francisco, he actually refused me because I had been irradiated and because of that risk, like you're saying of the wound not closing Yeah, and he didn't do the next surgery, which may have to happen if it didn't close properly. So he didn't want to do it. And I remember feeling so upset that if implants need to be exchanged every 10 years, then it's obviously part of the plan that they're going to go back in there. So why would that have been okay? But it's not okay when I just want you to take them out. Um, so yeah, it's odd. <laughs> so yeah. much of it. So much of it is odd. We'll call it odd. Funky. Funky. We like that word. Funky. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did you, so did you find somebody? I mean, like, where are you in terms of that process right now? Is that still something? Okay. So, so in terms of that process, I, four and a half years later, decided, okay, I'm finally going to go make this look something, I don't know, better than what it looked. And I shared with my cousin who was also my hairdresser. So I guess that's where you disclose this kind of stuff. But, um, I let her know that I was decided that I was going to have my first revision and get my, you know, newly reconstructed self. (laughs) And she shared with me and asked if I had heard of breast implant illness because a couple of her sister-in-laws had breast implants for augmentation purposes like 20 years earlier. And one of them had... Um, explanted and had a lot of ailments that were linked to her breast implants and was doing really well since she removed them. So I just said, no, I've, you know, never heard of that in my life. And I went home and that day she had added me to a Facebook group um, called Breast Implant Illness and Healing by Nicole. And I kind of just started seeing the post and just looking at it here and there for a while, like at least a month or two, just kind of watching and reading. And then I put up a post and a fellow breast cancer survivor in that group um, named Robin Tout reached out to me in my post and, you know, shared that she's also a survivor and kind of took me under her wing. And I remember her asking me about different symptoms and I did have a lot of symptoms that I attributed to the aromatase inhibitor I'm on and then of course going through surgical menopause and just getting older going through chemo you know all of it so I did have a lot of symptoms and she would say oh it's your implants it's your implants and I just remember feeling like oh my gosh everything is not my implants (laughs) but um (laughs) then I really was surprised. Like I had just decided at that point I wanted them out because 
I had done a lot of research and even though I wasn't certain if my symptoms were because of my implants, I had learned enough, like the saline type that I had chosen because I thought they were safer. They were known to have faulty valves that can grow organisms in them. Oh, wow. So I started to have a lot of anxiety about, oh, what if mine are moldy? And I would see these moldy ones coming out of women that I just started to just feel really <laughs> disturbed that mine might look like that. Yeah, I'm, so, my tummy um, just turned a little there because <laughs> I am very visual. And, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's okay. I, it's great information because I didn't, I didn't realize that. I didn't know. Yeah, and I I didn't know either, and I think that that was, you know, part of like um, a re-triggering in a way, just that trauma of kind of being pulled back into that experience and having to rethink everything again. Like, it was very traumatic, and I think as you see the information and the experiences of others and how long they've been going on, then that kind of even adds to it because you feel the sense of betrayal in a way and like how was I in the dark or how did I not know and so I notice a lot of women will kind of have shame or you know blame themselves for not having been more informed and I think that's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning of like we're just too overwhelmed to be informed absolutely and I think that we need to try to let that go and not hold it against us when we are trusting our doctors to you know, be informed themselves and and give us the information. So it is definitely a hard time when you, you know, find out otherwise for certain. Yeah. And I, you know, it's for many of us, you know, this comes out of left field, you know, it's not anything Mm -hmm. that's on our radar. You know, it, Mm -hmm. many of us are told we're too young, you know, it's, it, this can't be, you know, and so, for some, you know, it, it just comes out of left field and then all of a sudden it's go, 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 go. Like everything is in crisis mode. Right. And I get it. You know, there's, right. but again, I, I feel like there has to be some kind of balance between, yes, we've got to deal with this right now and figure out what it is that has to happen. But by the same token, mm-hmm. there also has to be that opportunity for anyone who's being diagnosed to just take a pause and breathe and digest and then Mm -hmm. be able to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, being provided with all of the information, all of the options, right? you know, and because, Mm -hmm. you know, I've talked about this with a lot of people, but you know, the, the whole idea of going flat, um, you know, that's not something that was ever talked about, you know, and it really only came up on my radar because I have, two friends, um, one who has since passed, but Sarah and Barbie who created this flat and fabulous. And that was really the first time where this Mm -hmm. started to kind of pop up for me. And I'm like, Oh, people go flat. Like that's a thing. Right. You know, but we're not. And I don't know if I was going to say, I don't know if you know that I also, I started a Facebook group myself, um, with a focus on, breast cancer survivors explanting though it's also for women who already went flat maybe at the at the start or are exploring doing so and and that's called fierce flat forward yeah i've seen it and have you seen it i have i'm not in it but you know that idea of what you're what you're mentioning about um 
knowing all the options. Yeah. You know, Catherine Guthrie, who wrote the memoir Flat, she coined the term um, put flat on the menu. And that's one thing I definitely hear women say is, you know, I didn't know we didn't have to do it. And I remember being so shocked when I started to hear that repeatedly that, oh, I thought we had to do that. So, of course, when women feel that that was their only choice, um, yeah, obviously they're not being given their choices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it, and I, I like exactly what you said is, you know, it's the doctors are trying to really kind of do what they can, um, you know, with the information that they have. Right. Um, I feel like everybody's kind of learning and, and, um, getting better at things. Um, but there, you know, I, I hear a lot of stories of women who, you know, they were denied this or they were denied that, or they didn't know, or, you know, they were just so unaware and they just Mm -hmm. did what their doctor told them to do. And then stepping back out of that, you know, when we're on the other side of that, when we're not in the thick of it, stepping outside of that, then we start to realize, was that really what I should have done. And it's hard, you know, you talk about these women who, mm-hmm. you know, they shame themselves and they, you know, they, they're angry at themselves. And I always say, you know, we do the best that we can with the information that we're given. And that's really all that we can do. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and it mm-hmm. is, it is very frustrating sure. when you find out different information for sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that right. is absolutely frustrating. And it almost feels like that, like, the stages of grief in a way, like I, I remember that phase of first learning and, and that phase of, um, being ashamed in a way, or just kind of beating yourself up over it. So I think it's part of it, but eventually that's why I decided to add the forward to the title of my group, because (laughs) eventually you need to, to move forward and, you know, do what you can to make change and help other women avoid going through the same, um, reconstruction nightmares. Absolutely. And so do you accept people into that group? So, you know, I'm, I'm not flat. Um, at this point, I don't Uh know that I would go flat. I, you know, haven't had any Mm -hmm. symptoms that I'm aware of, but do you also accept people Mm -hmm. into the group that, um, you know, are not yet flat or going flat? Yes. So I do accept people in that are considering doing so if they're a survivor or a previvor and then just would hope in time if they choose, you know, they've decided they're never going to do that um, or maybe pursue some other type of reconstruction post explant or at the time of their surgery that they would then remove themselves from the group. Okay. Fair enough. I think that's a, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, if there's a listener out there that's, you know, kind of maybe teetering uh, between their choices and just yeah. kind of exploring different things that, you know, just given the title of it, um, you know, would I be accepted into that group? Would they say no? You know, um, so that's yeah. good to hear that you also, um, and accept. I think, yeah. And I was going to say, like you said, making sure that people are aware of it. So I think it is important to let women just see that. Yes. Hey, there are women out here living the flat life happily and, there's a lot of advantages to it as well. So, yeah. And I think that's great work. I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful to be surrounded by so many women and, 
you know, I have, I have friends that I've met before this podcast, but I've met many more through this podcast. Um, you know, so if there's anything that I've gained within the pot, you know, within doing the podcast, it has genuinely been some really amazing people who are doing some great advocacy work. Um, and in fact, when you mentioned Robin's name, um, I had to kind of giggle cause she's, she will actually be coming onto the podcast, um, in the near future. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So I first met her, like I said, through that group and we both ended up testifying at the FDA's hearing on breast implant safety last March. So wow. that's where I got to meet her in person and um, we continue to work together. Yeah, that's great. Well, and we need people like you. Um, you know, I, I know that you've talked about having some anxiety with being, you know, kind of back into kind of the breast cancer world, if you will. Um, but you're doing amazing mm-hmm. things. And, you know, so I hope that that will continue because we definitely need voices like yours. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.